Hey, listeners, this is Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to Alligator Preserves. Stay tuned for my interview with Paul Thaler, author of Bronxland, a book you're going to want to read. And please do excuse the occasional warble in sound that is inherent in these interviews sometimes when you do them over Zoom. And watch for this interview on YouTube, which I will post next week along with show notes and hopefully some photos from Paul. I'm heading to Mile High Con in Denver today for the weekend, so I hope if we have anyone listening in Denver, you'll come out to see me. I'll be at the Hyatt Regency in the Denver Tech Center with many other authors and artists. It's going to be a wonderful weekend. Now don't go away. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Hello, story lovers, and if you're watching video lovers as well, this is Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to and watching Alligator Preserves. I have a really special guest today, and we're going to talk about Paul Thaler and his amazing book, and I just have to show this right away. I'm going to show this a couple times during our during our visit, Paul, uh, Bronxland. So, Paul, let's just get right to who you are. Who is Paul Thaler? Who is Paul Thaler? Uh, that question. Uh, well, I am a longtime writer. Uh, Bronxland actually is my first novel, um, and uh, A Labor of Love, which I'll talk more about uh, a little later in our interview. Uh, but I've also authored uh, two nonfiction uh, works, uh, one called The Watchful Eye, the other called The Spectacle. And uh, I'm a former journalist, magazine editor. I've been a media commentator for a number of national programs like CNN and HBO documentaries and the like. And uh, I'm a professor, professor of communications and journalism at Adelphi University here in New York, as well as New York University. So that's, that's the short resume. And, um, you know, just great being with you. Here, Laurel. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time with me. So you have done things, been places, and you have stories to tell. How did the idea of Bronxland evolve? Well, interestingly enough, about six years ago, I had the audacity to think that I could write a memoir about my life story. And uh, I did so. I spent the next two to three years, in fact, writing what I thought was the, the great memoir and made, I wouldn't say the mistake, but I did hand over this manuscript to a good friend of mine who's a writer, and he made the comment that uh, perhaps, but just perhaps, my family will be interested in reading this memoir. And given the fact that I was going for a larger audience than three or four or five people that may look at this manuscript, I turned it into a novel. I turned it into a semi-autobiographical over the next two years, frankly. So the book itself was about five years in the making. And I have to say, uh, the audience has grown to more than uh, those few. And, and it really was a labor of love, this book, because it allowed me to go back to the old neighborhood and uh, just reimagine those days. And uh, the response actually has been quite interesting. 
frankly. So uh, we could talk more about that, but that is kind of the journey of, of that book. And here it is. So you say the response has been interesting. And I have to tell you, I didn't grow up in the Bronx. I grew up in the South Shore of Boston. But you took me back to my middle school years in a, a big way. And I don't know how you did it. How did, how did you do it? And how many people have thanked you for taking them back to their middle school years? Well, you know, we all share that commonality, that coming of age story, or the time of adolescence. And uh, if the book resonates, it is it resonates on that level. The fact that it touches that part of our human existence, that the journey that we take and all the, the highs and, and the lows and just sorting it out. And uh, I hope I was able to capture that in the book. And if I might say so, the re- reaction has been very, very, very positive. And, Many folks kind of speaking uh, about the book in the same terms you just mentioned, the idea that I could identify with my Paul Wolfenthal character from the old Bronx, getting him back in touch. If I could, if I could say, I actually got uh, emails from my old paper boy, who I didn't really know back in the early 1960s. But said, he knew you. He remembered you. He remembered my apartment. He remembered delivering the paper. Uh, several people from back then got in touch. People, frankly, I didn't remember, but they remembered me through the story. Say, Paul, you know, I read the book and thank you for taking me back. And uh, there was that feeling of of reunion that was part of uh, of this experience. It it truly has been uh, amazing, you know, just just connecting in all sorts of ways with people I knew. And people I didn't know, people who said, hey, thanks, thanks for coming back to the old neighborhood. Yeah, so it's been I, that. I think, I think you did something magical. You, you really did. As, as a seventh grade English teacher, you're seeing about the insanity of that choosing your seat day. You had me at the edge of my seat because I was so nervous for, I was going to say you, but I was nervous for your character, Paul. And it was hilarious and accurate. And I remembered my first day, my plan was to put up a seating chart on the front uh, board and have everyone find their names and then find their seats. And that was far too much. I ended up saying, you know, kind of like your teacher did, stop, slow down, hang on. How about stand against the side of the wall and I'll tell you where to sit. But so I actually had a little control over that. But your situation there with losing that privacy, oh my gosh, I was just horrified for you. Well, yes, I, I lost the chance to be with my would-be girlfriend uh, back in uh, seventh grade, you know. I, I was beaten out to that seat. and By the bad boy, by the bad boy in the class. By the bad, there was always that bad boy, and uh, Tommy Brannigan hopefully is a memorable character in that book as well. But uh, I have to say that a number of those incidents really were based on actual real-life situations. You know, that bad boy you're mentioning was, was actually a bully that uh, was very, very real. And the confrontation with the bully in that particular book 
was also quite real. So I had the luxury, if that's the word, of reliving that past and putting it into story form. And of course, I've taken liberties throughout the book. It is a novel. But at the heart of the book, there's a lot of truth to it. I, I did the same thing with my first novel, Miss, which is, was based on that first year of teaching seventh grade English. And I journaled that whole first year because I couldn't believe what I was experiencing in the classroom each day. And so I had a year's worth of journal entries that seven years later I ended up fictionalizing, loosely fictionalizing, as I believe you did here too. So that fight with Tommy that you had, you say that actually happened. Yeah. And and talk to me about the idea of respect in, in the animal world, because that's kind of an animal world thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, uh, again, uh, the school is an interesting environment, right? There's the schoolyard where where kids meet, and that's one environment. Then there's the classroom, another environment. Then there's your relationship with teachers. And in the book, there I have several relationships with teachers, including my beloved Miss Krause in the book, who 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 existed. Uh, actually, uh, not quite in the in, in the form that you see it in the book, but someone who stays with me. You know, here I am a half century later, and there she is in my mind's eye. And then there's Mr. Pagliaro. That actually is his real name, you know. And I mentioned in the acknowledgments and notes at the end of that book some of the some of the parts that were were real. And Mr. Pagliaro, who's my music teacher. I uh, was very real. And if I, you don't mind me getting off on the anecdote. No, no, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you know, that situation where I was uh, the lead clarinetist in the school orchestra. And at the end of the year, there is this little tiny bronze medal that's handed out to the leaders of the different sections of the orchestra. And I was well-deserving, if I might say, of that bronze medal for the woodwind section. And he, Mr. Pagliaro, gave that medal to a second-level clarinet player, and I was, de- I was devastated. Devastated, not for the medal, really. When I look back on it, it was Mr. Pagliaro, his accepted... Oh, we just froze a little bit. ...acknowledgement, yeah. And uh, so when he gave the medal to someone else, I, I, I was actually emotional as a result. And in fact, he did call me into the office. It plays out just as it does in the book, frankly. And he gives me this incredible medal he received from his days in the army, as I describe in the book. And to this day, I, re- I, I remember that, that small scene in one's life, and I try to capture it in that chapter. Even thinking about it just brings back uh, an emotional feeling about Mr. Pagliaro, who I acknowledge by name and by story, so we, we, if we're lucky, we have those people in our lives. Yes, and, and that, that scene was so powerful because it was poignant. And it was, I could, again, I could feel the character's angst and the, you, you did deserve it. He did deserve it. And yet the lesson that Mr. Pagliaro taught you was so valuable. No question. And, and his reasoning, actually, for giving out the middle to the first player was his kind heart. You know, he really wanted to help that student, and I recognized that later. So you just give him a boost. Everyone understood the dynamics of that orchestra room, but here was a kid he wanted to help. 
And that only made the scene more poignant for me because it wasn't as if he was now trying to help make me feel better. It was the fact that he was, he was reaching out to another student with his good heart, realizing that it had affected me and, 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 and then doing something about it. So, you know, that, that's just one small incident, a much larger story, of course, but uh, it, it certainly was part of my story. You, you have so many incidents in this story. I, I want to talk about them all, and I know we don't have time to talk about them all, but the idea of being in lust with your teacher, oh. Miss Bonnet, in that art Absolutely. project. Talk Absolutely. about that art project. True. Honest, honest to goodness. So I do not use the real name of my former seventh grade math teacher, but Miss Bonet, the fictional character, is quite real. <laughs> and she was, she was this beautiful, incredibly dynamic teacher who taught a subject I had no interest in called mathematics. And if I could say I, I just fell in love with her for all the wrong reasons, I suppose. No, uh, all the right reasons for a boy that age, yes. right? I mean, that's when, talk about hormones raging, right? And and in fact, in my art class, I couldn't have made that story up. I couldn't have made, I, my mind couldn't have gone to that place in a fictional way. And in fact, I had to sit down with Miss Bonet and explain why I had, in fact, composed this naked art drawing of Miss Bonet, signing her name to it. And here I am sitting in a room with her. She's holding up this picture. I had composed this this art through all sorts of colored paper, glossy paper that I had put together as I described in the story. And uh, absolutely true, mortified, and needless to say, probably traumatized. So I, I, I had a way of, re, you know, revisiting that place in in Bronxland, and I have to say that Miss Bonet was very very kind, uh, although my art teacher was not, and you know it was I'm sure the talk of junior high school eighty two, which interestingly enough I'd been in contact through Facebook through junior high school 82 alumni. And now they're, they're all kind of coming back to me and saying, and we're, we're kind of revisiting those days uh, online, frankly. Oh my gosh. So that, that's another anecdote from the book. Yeah. yeah. Yes. For those of you just joining, I'm talking with Paul Thaler, the author of Bronx land, a book that will take you back to your middle school years, regardless, I think of where you grew up. It's, it's amazing. You have it all in this book. You've got, Sex in the laundry room and the creepy bald guy in the theater. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Which one do you want to talk about? <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I don't know where to start. Yeah. Well, oh, uh, you know, on, on one level, it really was a time of innocent love, and you know, and you know, my my D.D. O'Hara was was really a composite of. I guess a few girls uh, during a period of a few years that I, I got to know, and one girl in particular, and one girl who broke my heart as hearts are meant to be broken, and during that time, and, and there was a character I can't say it was totally accurate. The depiction of a scene where I come upon this teenage couple having sex, and I had a putting that chapter together, which combined imagination 
uh, as well as some parts real life. And uh, the, certainly the description of my neighborhood and that cellar area was right on target. Uh, it was a place I didn't want to go to. And to tell your viewers, uh, this was kind of a cellar that was attached to the building where I lived. And you kind of go in where there's a laundry machine, but it was as I mentioned in the book, it could have been the set for Psycho, you know, this dark basement room where you discover the body of the dead mother. In this case, you discover this teenage couple coupling, uh, having sex in, in, in the back corridor. And a vivid scene, I have to say. Um, and then but, she went on to torment you after that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, it's a coming of age. It's coming of age is discovering one's own place in, in this world, uh, and that deals with girls, it deals with sex, it, it deals with just growing up, uh, physically, physiologically growing up and coming to terms with your own body that is going through all of these changes, as we all know. And uh, I think that, again, is one of the pulls of the book, because, you know, we're not only going through physical changes, but psychological changes, we're discovering ourselves, we're discovering the others out there and a magical, mystical, frustrating time uh, that we, we go through. Your scene with your mother speaking with John Kennedy. Yeah. Did, did that actually happen? I have to admit that didn't happen. But John Kennedy was, in fact, a Bronx boy. Uh, everything about that history... All the history in the book actually is true. John Kennedy, in fact, did have a, a speech on Concord, just as I describe it taking place. 20,000, more than 20,000 people showed up for that rally. I've seen, I have the pictures. In fact, they show one picture. There's a series of pictures in the book. One, one photograph shows him on that platform that I described. But as it turns out, I mean, not only was John Kennedy a hero of mine growing up, but interestingly enough, he spent, and not very many folks actually know this, he spent ages 10 through 12 here living in the Bronx. His house still stands. In fact, a picture of that house is in the book. I, I still live in the Bronx in Riverdale. I live about uh, three blocks from the Kennedy Mansion. So that ending chapter where I go back to that house is quite accurate. I've gone to that house a number of times and, and just stood there on the grounds. I mean, it's abandoned. The house is abandoned for many years now. And that really inspired a lot of that, that uh, book. In fact, in the book, there's a class photo of John Kennedy with his Riverdale Country School classmates, a Bronx boy. And he went to school in the Bronx. Interestingly enough, as I discovered in the research, Lee Harvey Oswald spent several years living in the Bronx. And who knew that? So here is the the assassin of John Kennedy, living in the same borough, not too far from where I'm living also, from Tremont Avenue on 178th Street. The geography is close to Tremont Avenue. And John Kennedy, who, li who lived close by where I am now, and these two men, of course, meet in such a tragic circumstance. So that history, and there's a whole lot of history in the book, having to do with the start of Vietnam, the civil rights movement, which actually certainly plays into certainly plays into the story, you know, with my friendship with Joe, ba the Joe Bailey character. So that's what I think makes this book so heartwarming for me. It's not just 
a book about growing up. There are so many books like that. But I think it takes place at a special place in time. Not only is my neighborhood changing, not only am I changing as an individual, but the world's changing. Our United States is changing. So there are those parallels that run deep, I think, in the book. I hope, I hope it comes through. It absolutely comes through. And as you said, it's not just a coming-of-age book because it is so rich in the history of the time and so real. It, t- it takes you right back. Did Kennedy influence your any of your later political inclinations, or, or should we stay away from that subject? Absolutely not. Uh, in, in fact, John Kennedy was, I mean, just as I mentioned in the book, you know, I grew up during the gray days of the Eisenhower years. And it was great. You know, I, I didn't identify with those years, just as a kid, of course. But then comes the, the day glow colors of the 60s. I mean, we moved from gray, black and white to these bright colors. And Kennedy was emblematic of this youthful new movement that was coming on the cusp of a whole range of political changes that were going to ensue during those years. And, of course, his, I, I spend a chapter, as you know, talking in very real terms about sitting at that television set for those four days in November. And that was absolutely how I remember it, the shock of losing my hero. And I set that up, of course, with a fictional scene where I do meet him on the concourse, imagining what that relationship would be like. But then the very real emotional connection I had to those four days just watching that. And later on, I, I did, politically speaking, I did strongly identify with his brother, Robert Kennedy, which I don't get into, of course, in this book. But what a, what a you know, it leaves open that question, the what if question. What hap- What if, where would we be if Kennedy had lived, if, if Robert Kennedy had lived, if Martin Luther King had lived? You know, that, that was a, a tragic, tragic decade for, for all of us who... Regardless of your political inclination, frankly, you know, who lived during those times, and of course, a war that, that was very, very divisive. All right, so I have to talk about where you learned compassion, and, and I want to tie this in with what you talk about with the missing boy. And you read the story of the missing young boy, Benji, and that was based on an actual event that happened, sadly, uh, a little. Six-year-old boy gone missing. But talk to me about where you learned compassion because it comes through brilliantly in this book. And I I just, I feel everything that you're feeling. Yeah. I mean, um, I've been very fortunate. I've come from a family where the very common denominator is that compassion, that love, that connection. My parents were, were truly role models in the sense that they they actually suffered hardship here as immigrants in America trying to make good, uh, doing whatever they needed to not only support their family, but just love their family. We were just that type of tribe, and, and not just a, a family of the five of us, because the characters in the book are real. There's Rosie, there's my dad, Mac, my brother, Fred, are all here. And so are my aunts and cousins. My Aunt Selma is a very real character, and there's a chapter about how Aunt Selma did away with my comic books, my Superman comic books. We could talk about that one, but that incident is as real as, uh, as my memory 
it tells me, and it's a humorous but poignant scene in my connection with my, my beloved Aunt Summer, who is still around today. My family itself was, was just, a, they gave me, they gave the book the heart of this, because it, it, of this book, because it, it was easy actually to write, because it is real, it was real. So if readers feel that connection, it's because it comes from that place. And, well, I, I don't think you have to hope anymore that your readers will feel these things because it does. It comes through brilliantly. Yeah. How did you think of the idea of using that story of the missing boy as a, a thread that goes through your story? How'd that come about? Or yeah. who suggested it? Or did you just know that that had to happen? Well, the Aton Pate story was, I've been following it for. for Many years, it was for a period of time, the six-year-old boy who was taken off the streets of Manhattan really riveted the attention, especially, uh, I, I don't know how it played nationally, but certainly here in New York. And actually, just recently, last year, did they supposedly find the, the killer of Aton Pace. Now, this, this killing took place in the early 80s. So it is outside the time frame of the book, but certainly a tragedy that has stayed with me for so many, many years. And so I wanted to bring him home, as I say in my notes. Uh, I and wanted don't, to find... And don't give, don't give away too much because you know, readers I, don't read yeah, what you're doing with this. I, I, I know. But I, just, and just in thinking about Aton Pace and what his parents must have gone through, what this little boy must have gone through, I just, I, I don't want to sound too maudlin here, frankly, because uh, the book is really not that book. It's it's not it's not no, it doesn't not. go there, it doesn't go there. But this story is is a story about another child. It's a story about one kid and other children. But it's also a story about Aton Page, even if he's not a major character necessarily in the book. He's still part of the heart of this book, so th- that's why he's there. And it's, it's amazing when you write a novel, I'm sure you've experienced it too, Laurel, how your memory starts to kind of leap to other areas. Memories you thought were long gone actually come, come to mind. And, and that spurs other memories. And in turn, wow, look, the avalanche of memories start to hit you. And you can't write it fast enough or organize it clearly enough to make it real. But that's... That, is the labor of love. That's the joy of writing this particular book. I've written others, as I mentioned. That was much. That was more of an academic exercise where I had to put pieces together in a very objective fashion. This was hardly that, and this was another experience altogether. And one that, even when I talk about the book, it 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 just there's emotions that rise just in thinking about those episodes that uh, that are very real. Well, you, you light up and you become very animated, and they say that if you're writing and you just can't write fast enough, then you're on a great roll and you're doing something amazing. Who, who did your editing? Actually, I have a small publisher out on the West Coast, uh, Black Opal Books. They've been very, very writer-friendly, I have to say. You know, it, it, you know, there's two parts to writing the book. There's writing the book, and then there's publishing the book, as we all know, as writers. And publishing the book is was more difficult than writing the book, I'll be honest with you. I tried to get an agent first, and since my name was not Stephen King or James Patterson, uh, I had a little bit of a problem with that. 
And the same thing, the, the publishing market really has changed since I last published the other two books. And finally, I find this small publishing house that just had their arms wide open and they really in, enjoyed the book. And uh, the book is actually just came out last week, frankly, in hardcover. So they not only published the ebook version, but the paperback version, which came out first. They said, well, let's try it. Let's try the hard book as well, which I was delighted with because I like the feel of a hard book. A hardcover book and uh, so it's actually out in all three editions and we also have this authors group so we're, we're this kind of coterie of writers who online uh, we, we we talk to each other online through this authors group and it's a wonderful wonderful community of writers and, and a very giving community because we share ideas in fact uh, I got to learn about uh, Alligator Reserve through through you know, uh, June, June, June Trope. Yes, yes. I interviewed June Trope a while ago. And she's been very generous, June has been. So so there's Black Opal Books. I, for, for writers who want to get their work out there, I, again, I find them, these folks, very, very writer-friendly. And uh, they get my endorsement for sure. Well, that's that's wonderful. And coming back to coming back to your book, which, by the way, I just got mine in paperback like the day before you, you said that it was coming out in, in hardback. But it's still uh, awesome. It's still amazing. Black Opal uh, books. <laughs> your bike accident and coming home to all your comic books missing. What was up with your aunt? Oh, Aunt Selma. Back to Aunt Selma. All right. So um, it plays out. Just as I mentioned, you know, I was this comic book aficionado by my break. And uh, Superman was the man, as is very clear in this book. And I kind of get into some of the history there of Superman. But I had this collection of Superman comics. You know, we joke about it today in our family. If I had kept those comics, right, uh, I would be on, you know, in a state in Florida, you know, with swimming pool. But... uh, my aunt Selma actually came over one day and she cleaned up my messy room. They make very clear in the book I was the number one slob in the family. And so my aunt, my, my great aunt Selma, she came, comes up, cleans up my room, tosses the comic books. I come back and uh, they're gone. And to this day, I tease my aunt Selma about this. And she's so, 50 years later, she's apologetic for 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 this for this particular incident and and we have a good laugh uh when we bring it together in fact when the book came out i read her the chapter uh on 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 superman and uh her face actually turned white she she still felt that mortified feeling that oh what did i do paulie you know with your comic books and uh <laughs> she was she was probably Trying her best to not only help you but help her sister. So she was your sister's, your your mother's sister. Yes, there's one of three sisters, and there's a small part of the book where I talk about their family background, and that is actually true. Where uh, I felt obliged to talk about my aunts, where they come from. There's a letter that I post from my uncle Ruby, who was this World War II and Korean War vet a hero. That letter is actually true. And I just felt obliged. I, I wanted I wanted that book to to have that stamp of, of authenticity to it. So years from now, if other family members read it, there it is. So one of the later chapters, I actually 
do get into some of the family history there. The beautifully embellished memoir is what I'd call it. A couple of your characters, too, I wanted you to talk about Joe, who, you know, the one black student who was framed for the theft of your clarinet and that disgusting character, Plots. I mean, I, I know every classroom has someone like that, but oh, you bring them to life in a big way. Yeah, uh, and much of that is, is true, although the Joe Bailey character, who's a real best friend, really comes into play in high school. And when I, when I counted some of that racism that was bubbling up in the 60s, and he was my buddy. He did take me to Harlem for that basket, that memorable basketball game that's in the book. Uh, there was a character, he wasn't named Plotz, but who was one of those, one of those characters, unfortunately. And in fact, there's an incident where he's involved with a stolen clarinet, my stolen clarinet. That actually did occur. Now, Joe Bailey character was embellished, but the clarinet incident was was quite real. And, you know, these were the times. And I wanted to, as I said before, I wanted the book also to speak to the times and the racial times that existed uh, back then. And some of these experiences kind of melded between, high, you know, high school, even college, and, and the 60s in, in period. But, you know, I didn't want to get away from that element, which I think is embedded in the book, as well as, you know, controversies over Vietnam, which is secondary, I think, in the book, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. um, it's a time of tumult in this country. And, you know, the changing Bronx neighborhood, as I mentioned earlier, was just a microcosm of a larger picture going on in America where we're dealing with who we were as a country, who we are as people in this country. So I hope it resonates there. Stop hoping it does. <laughs> yeah, well. So, Paul, what do you do for fun? <laughs> what do I do for fun? Well, I, I'm a professor. I thoroughly enjoy going into the classroom and helping to mold uh, young minds. And I still play basketball. I'm an avid player still. I mentioned that because basketball is, is the, the sport of choice, certainly in Bronxland. And that's a, a game that's been with me for my for literally my entire life. I still I still ride a bicycle all around. I'm an avid bike rider. In the book, the cover itself, as you can see, back in those days, you'd get on the a bike and you you just go anywhere and everywhere on your bike. It was it really your wheels of freedom. And even though uh, I have a car now and all that transportation that's around, I still. I still take the bike. I still take the bike everywhere I go. So uh, I enjoy that. So, you know, I guess I haven't changed all that much, maybe from being a 13-year-old with basketball and bicycles. Do you still play the clarinet? And I still play some clarinet, but I play more piano uh, now. I'm still uh, still love music. My brother is, a, is an incredible pianist, as I kind of imply in this, in this uh, book as well. So music... My father's a violinist coming from Hungary with his violin. So he, he gave us that gift of music. And so that was passed down. And on one level, it was a very ordinary life. On one level, it's a very extraordinary life. When you, when you have children and you relive 
part of your own youth to what they go through and you take delight and sometimes you take a little concern and they're growing up that those are certainly gifts that they give to me in terms of rekindling Bronx line. In fact, in the acknowledgements at the very end, I actually give them credit for somehow reviving those memories of youth because I, I, I see it. I see it in, in what they're going through in their adolescent angst and also their adolescent joy. So, what, what, what kind of feedback did you get from them? Was there any horror over, oh my gosh, I can't believe my father wrote that? There's there's a there's certainly a little bit of that in some of the scenes that we've <laughs> we've kind of mentioned uh, a couple of faces turn red, but I have a set of twins actually. Today is their twentieth birthday. Well, happy birthday, twins! Let's do a shout out to them. There, there you go, Robbie and Rebecca Thaler. So I just uh, got in contact with them before this interview, and I have an older son who's a screenwriter, an aspiring screenwriter, out in Los Angeles. And uh, so they're a great, great bunch. I mean, don't get me off of them. And, oh. uh, but but I think they, they've taken some, if not embarrassing delight, but some delight nonetheless in reading Bronx Land. And uh, again, I think, you know, the, the reasons we write, we sometimes don't write for today. We write for tomorrow, which, I, which by, by which I mean maybe years from now, Somewhere in the family, they'll pick up this book and, you know, they'll enjoy it again. Well, well, let me ask you this. Will the story of Paul Wolfenthal continue? You know, I've been asked that question. I've been letting that idea brew, you know, whether there is another book there. I, I, certainly, there, there are other years that come into my life. Uh, on one level, I wonder if I've, I've said all I needed to say about Paul Wolfenthal or whether there's another chapter or more in his life. And there, there are. But I'm going to let that idea percolate. I'm, 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 still, I'm still actually getting over the loss of Paul Wolfenthal, meaning, you know, when you give up a book, you're giving a part of yourself, as you know. And uh, I, I kind of miss them. I used to, you know, you know when you write a book for over the course of years, they're part of your life. You're part of their life, these characters. And frankly, letting go of the manuscript to Black Opal Books wasn't all that easy. It was like kind of giving over your children, I suppose, in some sort of way. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but there's something to it. So uh, I'll let you know. I'll let you know, Laura, once I, once I kind of come down from the high. Well, I know that I would be interested in reading the yeah, follow-on to L of Paul. Uh, to my listeners and my viewers out there today, uh, we've just been talking with Paul Thaler, author of Bronxland, a memorable, amazing, beautiful book that had me giggling and laughing and misty-eyed and take, took me back to my middle school years. And Paul, I'd just like to thank you for spending this time with me and I wish you the best of luck with this book and with your others. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to? Well, the, the book obviously is through Amazon, Barnes & Noble's online, other sites, Black Opal Books. Uh, I do have a Facebook page, so if they want to connect through Facebook. Are you uh, one of any? Are you one of many Paul Thalers? I think there might be uh, other. That's a good question, actually. Uh, there might be one or two other Paul Thalers out there, but there's also another site 
called JHS 82, Junior High School 82, which is at the centerpiece of this book. And I've just connected to all of these old chums from Junior High School 82, as I was mentioning. So I'm there as well. If you want to kind of join our conversation on Facebook, I do have an Instagram account, I think. I am not the most media savvy, I will admit to your audience, but uh, I'm there as well. And, you know, just delighted to speak to any of my readers and, and connect with you, continue, continue our talk about Bronxland. But I'd like to thank you, especially for making this such a delightful time. This is always my pleasure. And uh, talk about bringing back words from the past. Chum. Let's bring back chums as a word that we should start using for our friends. And I have one final question for you, Paul. Alligator preserves. There's a story behind that, that title. What kind of preserves do you spread on your toast in the morning if you have toast? What kind of preserves? And I do have toast. And I do use uh, strawberry and raspberry preserves. And... So there, that's what, uh, now that you, it's a question I, I can honestly say I've never been asked before, so I had to think about it. So uh, there, there, there you have it. How about your favorite color? How about your favorite color? My favorite color? Yeah. Oh, turquoise. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I like turquoise. Beautiful. Well, Paul, yeah. I hope to uh, interview you when your next book comes out. Thanks again. Great. Thanks for letting me visit. Bye. I will post show notes with links and photos on my website at leadvillelaurel.com next week sometime, and also the YouTube video of my interview. And if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends about it. I hope you'll help support my work by becoming a patron of my arts. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com slash alligatorpreserves. And join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Until then, check out Paul Thaler's book, Bronxland, and have a lovely week. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCarg, with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCarg. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at Amazon.com.